Good morning, good morning. I am Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Good to be together as a church family this morning in the Y, online, fun to worship together this and every Sunday morning. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. This morning, before I launch the sermon, I just want to say a quick something. Last Tuesday, the county health department issued a, a plea saying that these last weeks of January were going to be a critical juncture in our continuing battle with the novel coronavirus. And so they called on everybody to do their part to, uh, to protect the well-being of the public, the physical well-being of the public, especially during these last weeks of January. And so we decided that as a church, of course, we care deeply about the well-being of the, uh, of the public and of our community physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. So we decided that for the next three Sundays, meaning this Sunday and two more, 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 we are going to reduce our capacity for in-person worship by 50%. So our capacity is already reduced because of physical distancing, uh, but we're going to, for this Sunday and two more, reduce it further by 50% to try to do our part in this countywide initiative. So what that means is the vast majority of folks for this Sunday and two more will be worshiping online with us. It also means that we'll have a small congregation here in person in the Y for those that desire that, for those that need that. And if you're here with us in person, we'll just ask that you do what everybody here this morning is, is doing, following the guidelines that we have set uh, and mutually agreed upon, uh, the most important being remember to bring and wear your mask. And for all other ministry areas, for community groups, for all those sort of things, these last weeks of January, those leaders are empowered to make good decisions for your gatherings, for your events, whether to postpone, whether to gather virtually, whether to gather in person with the guidelines we have in place, which have worked really well, or whether to do a hybrid model. And you as an individual have the rights to consider how you want to be involved or if you want to be involved with any gathering or in-person uh, event during this time. As you can imagine, in our church family, as in every family, there's a wide variety of convictions and comfort levels about all this. Frankly, many of us as individuals have different comfort levels uh, week to week. That's all fine. That's just part of what this is. What Jesus commands us to do is to love one another. And so I'm thankful that those are our marching orders, to love one another. So that's what we'll continue to do. You all have done such a great job with that. Uh, not trying to always prove or right or caricature folks who have different views, but love one another. We've done such a great job of that. I know we'll continue to do such a great job of that into, into these weeks and months ahead. So my prayer is, uh, oh, the other thing I want to thank you for, uh, and then I'll tell you what my prayer is. The one thing I want to thank you for is just how conscientious we've been as a church family through this whole thing. Part of why we can do in-person gatherings is that folks have just been so conscientious. We are not aware of any instance of a person giving the virus to another person at a Lake Forest Davidson event or gathering. And so that speaks to God's grace and your conscientiousness. So thank you for that. That is so appreciated. So my prayer is that we'll continue to be a family that loves one another, that stays on mission together, that does the work God has called us to do during this time, to spread hope to a world that needs hope. 
and that we'll do all that while continuing to do our part to, to stop the spread. That's my prayer as we continue forward in all this. So this Sunday and two more. Did I say that? Okay, wonderful. This Sunday and two more, in case I didn't say that. So this year, we're preaching through the big picture of the Bible, what we're calling the story with a capital S, that God from the beginning of time has been writing a great story in this world. He calls each of us to come and find our place in it. The Bible teaches us who God is and who we are, how we are to relate to God, but the Bible can also be big and confusing and intimidating. Pastor Gray said a few weeks ago, the Bible is more like steak than mashed potatoes. It is best enjoyed with a little bit of chewing. And so through our Sunday morning sermons, we are setting aside all 2021 to take our church family through the big picture of the Bible, God's great story that finds its redemptive, uh, its completion in the redemptive work of Jesus. And you and I are invited to come and find our completion in the redemptive work of Jesus. Throughout the week, we have additional resources. These come out in our weekly happenings email. It's additional resources. There's a reading plan, which my wife Mandy is really enjoying. There's a kid's reading plan, which my children are really enjoying. And there are videos, which I am really enjoying. I'll let you draw the conclusions you need to draw from that. But we can all grow closer to God, understanding the Scriptures better, God's story better, and finding our place in it. Today, we are on the third week of the story, and we're on chapter three of the Bible. That's much better than last week when it was week two and we were on chapter one. Now it's week three and we're on chapter three. We're picking up speed, but we are spending a good deal of time in these early chapters because like any good book, any good movie, the first part is where you learn who the characters are and what's the problem that's going to need a redemptive solution. Today we look at chapter three, Genesis chapter three, the third chapter of the Bible. Oh, chapter three. Last week, we watched God create the world. You can hear that sermon on the church website. We saw God's the creator of everything good. We live in a world that was created with beauty and with purpose. It was created and called good. So what happened? Because when you and I look around, we realize that not everything is good. There is work to be done. There are tears to be wiped. There are griefs to be observed. God created the world full, created humanity in His image, called us good. What happened? chapter 3 happened. Genesis chapter 3, what I often just call chapter 3, is referred to by most Christian theologians as the fall, the fall, F-A-L-L, the fall, when humanity and in fact all of creation got lured into rebelling against God. The theologian and poet G.K. Chesterton wrote that the fall is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. The only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. His point being that the problem with the world is evident. There's a broken quality in everything. There's a broken quality in our lives. There's a broken quality in our families. There's a broken quality in our friendships and in our peer groups. There's a broken quality in our governments and in our institutions. There's a broken quality in everything. This is part of why it's important we set aside a weekend to celebrate the life, the ministry of Martin Luther King Jr., who was a prophet to our society, who told us that we need personal change and we need societal change. And the reason for that is there's a broken quality in everything. And we look around and we see the brokenness, and the most reasonable explanation is something must have happened. The broken quality in everything is the one part of the Christian faith verifiable through its repeatability. 
It just happens again and again and again. So what happened? Well, the Scripture says that what happened is we fell and everything broke when we fell. Everything broke when we fell. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In that passage, which two verbs get joined together? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sinned and fall. So when we talk about the fall, we're talking about the introduction of sin into the world. We're talking about the effects of sin in the world. So that's what this chapter 3 is about, the introduction and effects of sin in the world. But what is sin? If you've been around for a while, you've probably heard all this. And the truth is, I'm just running out of sermon material. Not jokes necessarily, but sermon material. Sin was originally an archery term. And what sin meant was to miss the mark. So if you and your Hebrew buddy, ancient Hebrew buddy, went out to shoot arrows at the bullseye and you missed the bullseye, your buddy would say, ha ha, you sinned. And then you'd say, well, I'd like to see you try. Then your buddy would try and he'd miss the bullseye. You'd say, ha ha, you sinned too. Sinning meant to miss the mark. It was an archery term. So when we think about sin as a moral term, we're talking about how our lives miss the mark how our lives get off target, how our lives fall short of God and all that God wants for us. We could also think of sin as being like a mutiny or a rebellion, that humanity and, in fact, all of creation is rebelling against our Creator. We've decided to live our lives our way instead of God's way. And in doing so, we've distanced ourselves, detached ourselves from the source of all life, who is God. We're living life our way, but what we find is we're not truly alive. We're living life our way, but we find we're not truly alive. Yes, our lungs are breathing and our heart is beating, but we feel dead inside. We grab the wheel of the ship and we crashed it into the rocks. And each of us is born into this shipwreck, but it takes us a while to realize that's what it is because it's all we've ever known. So that gets us to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Will read part of this passage for us earlier. In the passage, the first man and the first woman, who also later are called Adam and Eve, are together in paradise. They're in this garden that's called Eden. They live in a close community with God. Eden was somewhere in the Middle East or like the eastern part of Africa. Archaeology tells us that part of the world used to look far more like the Amazon than it does today. But in that part of the world, there's one tree that God had told them not to eat from, But everything else in the garden is theirs. God gave them the world, but they focused in on that one tree. And one day a serpent started talking to them. This should have been a huge tip-off. I am immediately suspicious when serpents start talking to me. But these two folks missed that they were being lured away from trusting God, and as much as you or I might want to blame them, I too rarely notice when I'm being lured away from trusting God. I can get too focused on all that I don't have and lose sight of what God has given me and lose sight of the trap that's being set. This serpent is a mysterious figure. He just shows up without much introduction. And yet, in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation It says this about the serpent from all the way back in chapter 3. Revelation 12, 9 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, 
who leads the whole world astray. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So the rest of the Bible helps us see clearly what Adam and Eve could not yet see clearly, that by chapter 3, there were some beings in creation, some spiritual beings, they had been created by God, and yet they had started rebelling against God. And this Satan or this devil was the leader of the rebellion. If you think of the devil as like the little horns and the cape and the pitchfork, a better way to think would be the leader of the rebellion against God. God created him, but then he started to rebel against God. And now here he is in chapter 3 trying to lure the visible world of land and water, sky and stars, plants and animals, men and women into this rebellion against God. The serpent, the devil in disguise, says about that one particular tree. You know the tree they're fixated on? They have the world, but they're focused on the one tree. The serpent says of the tree, God knows, this is verse 5, God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What the serpent basically says is, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want what's best for you. This one time, just this once, stop trusting God. I'm not going to do that for every S, don't worry, but right now I will. The servant says, just this once, stop trusting God. So verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. This brings up an interesting question. How did they not realize they were naked? Like, how often, like, guys, have you gone to pay for something at the store, you reach down for your wallet, and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I forgot to have my wallet today. And then you think about it another second and go, no, wait a minute, I forgot to wear pants today. This does not happen. How did they not realize they were naked? It's as if the first people enjoyed such a close relationship with God that they didn't pay attention to all the details. They were so enraptured with God that it's almost like they lived in a wonderful dream state where only the most important things even made it on their radar. All that mattered was the close embrace of God who had made everything good. And then with that one bite of fruit, and by the way, the Bible doesn't say what kind of fruit it was. Some people speculate, but it does, the Bible doesn't actually say what kind of fruit it was. If you ask me, I think it's a fig. Read chapter 3 and you'll see why. But nobody knows. But with the one bite of that fruit, the dream shattered. And this is no surprise to us because for all of us, the dream has shattered. Everything broke when we fell. And Genesis chapter 3 shows us what it's like for our lives to miss the mark. We've kind of gotten used to all this. Nothing I'm about to say is going to sound all that surprising to you. Because we've gotten used to living lives that miss the mark. But there was once a time where this was all new. 
What does it look like to live a life that misses the mark? What is Genesis chapter 3? Chapter 3, oh, chapter 3. What does Genesis chapter 3 show us about lives that miss the mark? The first thing it shows us, a life that misses the mark, is about disobeying God. Disobeying God is one of the hallmarks of a life that misses the mark. In fact, this is the plainest sense of what happened in chapter 3, in the fall, what it means to sin, that you and I disobey God. The first people ate from the one tree God had told them not to eat from. They went against the clear instructions of God. They gave into that voice in their head that says, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want what's best for you. Don't be the fool who trusts God. Go against God on this one, just this once. Go against God. Do what's best for you. Disobeying God damages our relationship with God because we decide that we trust ourselves more than we trust God. We move from a God-centered life to a self-centered life. We take charge of our own destiny. Going against God's clear instructions does great damage in our relationship with God because these are the moments where we say, God, I don't need you. God, I don't want you. I don't necessarily uh, care what you think is right on all this. I'm going to do what I think is right on all this. We settle for life apart from God, but what we find is it's not really life at all. We settle for life apart from God, but we start to realize it's not really life at all. But we're in deep at that point, and so it doesn't stop there. The next thing we often start doing is we start hiding parts of our lives from God. So we start off at disobeying God, then we start hiding parts of our lives from God, because after these first people disobey God, what do they do? They hide. They can't stand to look at God face to face. They're too vulnerable, too imperfect. They came to fear God. They hid from God. Verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So not only do we push God away, but we isolate ourselves from God. We let shame or we let guilt psych us out from pursuing any kind of a reconciled relationship with God. We say things like, God doesn't want to have anything to do with me, or I can't let God find out about what I've done. I have to hide this part of my life from God. We convince ourselves we can't be vulnerable with God. We start to play hide-and-seek with God. This is a life advice I'm going to give you. Do not play hide-and-seek with an omniscient being. It never turns out well. But we start to play hide-and-seek with God. Some of us become guilt-ridden, ashamed, fearful of God. Others of us become guarded and standoffish and defensive towards God. We give God the Heisman. And then it goes another layer down. So we start disobeying God, then we start hiding our lives and parts of our lives from God. And then the last thing we see, at least in this part of chapter 3, is we shift any fault away from me. Shift any fault away from me. The dream is shattered, and now, and this is an important theological term, It's becoming a hot mess. These first people push God away. They're hiding from God. And now no one will take responsibility for their actions. The world is a mess, and it's not my fault. 
sounds like a political ad. The world is a mess, and it's not my fault. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So whose fault is the fall of Genesis chapter 3? The man says it's the woman's fault. And though I don't, I'm looking here, I sort of think this is when God created the first couch, but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> that went over a lot better at this service. At 9.15, folks looked at me like they didn't understand that joke. I'm guessing some of them were in trouble is what I'm guessing. <laughs> so the man says it's the woman's fault, and then she actually blames God for creating her. This woman you gave me. And then the woman says it's the serpent's fault. Our lives miss the mark, and so we're almost always looking for the problems out there. It is almost impossible for us to admit part of the problem might also be in here. It's easy to see the flaws in people we don't like and partners we no longer have. We can struggle to see the flaws in our lives and in the things and the people that we hold most dear. Who's responsible for the broken quality of the world? We are tempted to say, not me, and not anything or anyone that I hold dear. But the truth of the fall, both in God's story and in our story, is that because of our actions, everything is not as it should be. Because of our actions, everything is not as it should be especially our relationship with God and with other people, especially our relationship with God and other people. Because of our actions, everything is not as it should be. And that can be a difficult pill to swallow. God created everything good. God created a world of true freedom, and we took the freedom and created a world of true pain. God created a beautiful ship, and we grabbed the wheel and crashed it into the rocks. That doesn't mean that everything is lost. But it does mean that we're in a tough situation. And we need to feel the weight of that as individuals, as humanity altogether. We don't need to just skirt past, just fly past chapter 3. We need to feel the weight of what we lost. We need to feel the weight that everything broke when we fell. We need to feel the weight of the rebellion and that you and I have been lured into it as well. And yet, there is reason for hope. And to see the reason for hope, you need look no further than chapter 3. Because after the passage Will read for us in, in verse 21, Genesis 3, 21, it says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So the dream is shattered. The first people are leaving paradise, and as they do... God gives them a gift. The gift He gives them are clothes, so they will not be naked and ashamed. But why were they fearful about being naked in the first place? Because they sinned, because they joined the rebellion. They had a need solely because of their sin, and what did God do? 
God met it. You and I have needs solely because of our sins, solely because of our rebellion. We have longings because of how we've fallen short of God. And what does God do with those needs? And what does God do with those longings? Does God say, those good-for-nothing, pitiful, no good? God provides. God provides. And that, my friend, is the goodness of God. From chapter 3, the evidence is there that, yes, the world has a broken quality to it. Yes, every human life, your human life, my human life has a broken quality to it. But God's not going to leave us to just flounder in this shipwreck we created. God is going to do something. God is going to provide. God is going to pull us back into a reconciled relationship with Him, and He's going to do it through His kindness. He's going to do it through mercy. He's going to do it through compassion. God does not write us off. In fact, God desires to be with His people. God desires to be with you in that intimate, that close relationship that He once enjoyed with Adam and Eve, where God's presence was so close and so real, you could describe God as walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How close the presence of God was to those first people. God longs for that, and God has a plan for that. God says to the ancient serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so now, As we move on from chapter 3, there's a bunch of chapters left. As we move on from chapter 3, we're waiting. As we're walking through God's story, the story with a capital S, we're waiting. We're waiting for a person, in other words, the offspring of a woman. We're waiting for a person who will come to do battle with this ancient serpent, who will crush him and his rebellion and save us from the effects of our sin. Now, it does say that the serpent will wound the champion, right, while the, while the champion will crush the serpent's head, the serpent will strike the champion's heel. So, so the serpent will wound this coming champion, but the champion will prevail. The champion will lead humanity back to our Creator. The champion will take our broken pieces and make them into a beautiful mosaic. The champion will offer us as a gift the forgiveness we could never earn. God promises us way back in chapter 3 a wounded champion, a wounded victor in whose wake we will find the life that we have lost. God knows what He's doing. Who is this wounded champion? Who is this wounded victor who is at the center of God's plan and desires to be at the center of our lives? I guess we'll have to wait and see. As I wrap up this week, let me ask you this question. How do you see the effects of chapter 3 in your life? How do you see the effects of chapter 3 in your life and in the world around you, in your relationship with God and others? How do you, how do I see the effects of chapter 3 in our lives, in the world around us, in our relationship with God and others? Things like disobeying God, 
settling for life that's not really life, harming one another, hiding from one another, hiding from God, pointing fingers everywhere but in the mirror, systems and societies, people, every human heart, everything broke when we fell. Where do you see and feel the weight of chapter 3 in your life, in the world around you, in your relationship with God and others? The last thing I'd like to say as I sort of wrap up is, it is so important to distinguish between chapter 1 and chapter 3. They're not the same. Just because something exists, we have to understand, is it chapter 1 or is it chapter 3? Chapter 1 is when God creates the world. Chapter 3 is when the world rebels against God. Because I can often hear people say they want nothing to do with God because of something they see in the world around them. But there's an intermediate question, which is, is it chapter 1 or chapter 3? Is it an example of how God created the world, or is, an exa- is it an example of creation and humanity in rebellion against God? Because as I've thought about that over the years, I've started to realize a lot of things that used to make me angry with God or used to make me wonder if God really existed now make me eager for God to redeem broken things. The effects of chapter 3 are everywhere, and they are real, and they are painful, and yet God does amazing repair work. Even in the midst of our rebellion, God makes provision for our needs, our immediate needs and our ultimate needs. God has made provision for your immediate needs and your ultimate needs. The serpent's rebellion has been crushed, and you are invited to find life by submitting yourself to God's wounded champion. If only you and I will come to call on His name. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, the effects of chapter 3 are real, and they are painful. And even if we put our lives under your care, even those of us who've been Christians since Eisenhower was in office, we don't get around all of it. The effects are still painful, still real. So, Lord, I pray You would allow us to feel and the weight of and wrestle with the ways we disobey You, the ways we take a God-centered life and make a self-centered life out of it, the ways we hide from You, the ways we are defensive towards You. And, Lord, the thing in us that always points the finger everywhere but in the mirror. 
Lord, I pray we would not leave this time hopeless, but with hope that the redemptive work is happening in our midst, that we can join into your redemptive work, that your arms are open wide, that we might leave behind a self-centered life for a God-centered life, that we might open our entire lives up to you, even the parts we're not so proud of, that in admitting we have a problem and the world around us has a problem, we can be part of the solution. Begin your work in us, Lord, and then use us to make a difference in our little corner of the world or wherever in the world you, you move in our hearts, our minds, our souls to make an impact. So, Lord, we want to be part of what you're doing in this world. And we thank you that by your grace we can, that chapter 3 is not the end of the story, but a significant bump along the road. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand. Let's worship together.